Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa. Part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 420. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. First, before anything else, a big shout out. Hope everyone is okay there across the pond. Some terrible weather you're getting over there. Man, there's some snow. I hope everyone over there who's getting affected is kind of tucked up and snug as a bug in a rug, as my gran used to say. I hope you are all right. Big thoughts and big shout-outs to everyone who's kind of getting affected by that weather. That is some nasty snow coming down there. Ho-ho. I'll tell you what's coming on the day show. First up is, got an interview with young Mr. David Brin. The best year in space ever, 2015. That's so David says. Then the main fiction is Catastrophic Failure by David Steffen. Then right at the end, we have Science News for January 2016, Mr. J.J. Campanella. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So, 2015, David, young, young Mr. David Brin there wrote this article and I kind of stumbled across it there and I thought, oh, he's right, you know, because you kind of come in, you know, you pass a year and you kind of forget about it. But actually, 2015 was a remarkable year. And I wanted to get David on the show and just to kind of highlight some of the achievements that we have made. So, David, before we talk space and all the cool things that you see has happened in 2015, you're even upbeat about, you know, the spin-off technologies. You know? Give us a little few examples of them. Back in my day, we, we talked about spin-off technologies being computers and Teflon and, and uh, magnetic tape. Uh, nowadays, it's 
it's a much easier sell. I mean, what we get from space includes GPS, uh, you know, being able to know where you are at any given time uh, and all the tools that that empowers. There's there's uh, weather satellites which have enabled the genius meteorologists and climate specialists to expand uh, a four-hour joke of a weather report into a 14-day miracle. Um, the uh, there there's there's the freaking internet, <laughs> the internet and all these uh, and the telecom systems we have in our pockets. Um, those are gigantic spin-offs, but probably the most significant one is that you'll never is one that you'll never hear anybody else mention, and that's the fact that we're alive, at all, that we have civilization at all. Given how close we came to nuclear war back into the Cold War, it's very clear that Dwight Eisenhower was right, that the key to maintaining peace is calming everybody down because everyone has accurate situational awareness instead of inflating the threats in their minds. This is what we got from spy satellites. Uh, the, The fact that everybody sends them up and can see what each other are doing, this inarguably saved all of our lives and prevented us from living in, in a Mad Max um, wasteland. So I think these are all pretty good spin-offs, computers, all of these. Although I, I, I notice I left off most, one of the most important spin-offs, which is Earth sensing, which is enabling us at last to pummel to death the denialist cult um, <laughs> that, that, um, that we're not uh, affecting the world's climate. Um, and these satellites were deliberately delayed by some people, but they're up now um, and giving us the proof we need. But but those are just a few of the pragmatic things we got. The European Space Agency just uh, launched um, its alternative to GPS. So now there will be an alternative and a backup. Um, the Japanese finally got their orbiter around Venus. We just completed our mission to Mercury. Uh, vast numbers of, um, of magnificent uh, probes circling the Earth and one that's giving us full-time coverage of the daylight side so we can always see what, what our planet looks like at last. The, um, the, the missions to Mars have been spectacular. There was, uh, there was India's first interplanetary mission, uh, called Mangala, uh, fantastic success done on the cheap. Uh, we have five other orbiters above Mars now, and two loyal robots rolling all over the surface, um, finding out things about the early solar system and and pinning down possibilities that life began very early um, on our uh, on a sister world. A comet s- swept past Mars so closely. That if we had, if it had passed, it would have passed between the Earth and the Moon, and our Moon, much closer to Earth than our Moon, and we had the sensors there to turn uh, attention to it. The Dawn spacecraft visited Vesta, and and the largest of the asteroids, the the dwarf planet Ceres, with its mysterious white spots, um, teaching us how to navigate uh, and explore uh, asteroids. Asteroids were very much in the news. As uh, as space ventures started getting set up to um, to uh, be, do the beginning work, so that we might be able to look into mining asteroids, if we were to 
meltdown, and this is still theoretical, but if we were to melt down one of the just the right type of asteroid using solar mirrors, uh, one kilometer across, we could in theory get the entire world's iron and steel production for a year, the entire world's gold and silver production for a hundred years, and platinum group elements for a thousand years. And that's just one of them, and there are millions of them. So the Obama administration, its official manned spaceflight goal, is to send robots to collect small boulders out there and bring them to orbit above the moon. And I've, I've been stirring some controversy by saying we shouldn't land on the moon because leave that to billionaires um, who want to have some fun. But the moon is not really very useful to us at this point. Some of this um, asteroid work is also for the sake of survival because the more we understand them and comets – the better we'll be able to survive. And 2015 was the year that NASA set up a planetary defense office. The, the Juno probe to Jupiter, we're back at, Ju- at Jupiter again. And, we're, and there are plans afoot to um, explore uh, Europa, where we think that, that the gigantic uh, sub-ice um, ocean that's under the ice, we know the ocean is there. We might learn fantastic amounts by penetrating their Saturn. Um, the the Cassini mission uh, flew through uh, the uh, water volcanoes of Enceladus and is finishing up its fantastic science. And we're planning a, a mission to Titan, um, which has um, oceans of methane lapping against wax, uh, shorelines made of wax and the possibility of a strange kind of life there. Uh, Uranus and Neptune, we haven't done much lately. I'll admit those are gaps, but New Horizons brought us at last to Pluto, and it was spectacularly competent, unbelievably competent for it to be able to be so on target and on its own swing its cameras and instruments around um, to catch images that weren't blurry at all but were fantastic and... and, and uh, relayed to us science, and they did it so competently that they had to do no orbital corrections. So the mission is filled with fuel that they're going to use to send it to another object, another billion uh, miles away from the sun. And and so we're going interplanet and interstellar with this thing. How then, you know, I don't want to put a kind of bit of a downer on the, the private sector, but you, you seem to build that up as well. And there, there seem to be a, a few little kind of hiccups last year in with the private sector, you know. And is is it doom and gloom or are they doing all, holding their own up as well? Well, you know, the hope was always, and the right wing said that it ought to happen, well, how ironic that it was the Obama administration that really uh, unleashed capitalist competition in space, finally demanding uh, uh, competitive bids for um, launch services into orbit, for example. Um, and as a result, uh, Elon Musk's SpaceX is driving down the price, was already driving down the price of uh, space launch. And this is key because launch from the Earth's surface is the great bottleneck. He was already uh, forcing uh, a drop in the price for this service long before uh, what happened a few weeks ago when his private sector company brought a, its launch vehicle back to the launch pad and landed it on its tail, ready for refurbishment. 
if this proves out and 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 uh, first stages can be recovered routinely and reused, it could uh, it could drop the pros- uh, price of going into orbit easily by a factor of ten. Elon is talking by a factor of a hundred. I'll I'll believe that when I see it. But uh, meanwhile, Britain's um, Br- Richard Branson is collaborating with um, innovators in California to uh, to develop space tourism using the using the uh, uh, spaceship one system that they have there, uh, and it will be a, a very fine addition to the uh, suite of technologies. Now, to be fair, they they had a disaster uh, a couple of years ago. SpaceX, one of their rockets blew up last year, but this is a difficult business. Uh, no one said it was easy. And one of the great side effects of making some of it commercial and private is that rich risk takers will be able to pick up some of the burden. People tend to forget that this was one of the drivers of the development of air flight back in the barnstorming era of the 1920s and 30s. It had to have a, a, an underpinning of government support. In those days, it was uh, contracts for delivering mail. But it, then it was the millionaires, today they're called billionaires, who supported the cutting-edge development of, of, uh, of the riskiest technologies. And uh, the public has a different attitude. Uh, if you're a, if you're a rich egotist wanting to risk your life, you, 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 if one of them loses their life, um, he or she he's a hero um, or or a, or a fool. But in any event, you don't stop progress just because there was an accident in that case. Now you also mentioned in, in this, and I want people to go over and, and read this article as well. But you also mentioned off-world colonies. Colonies surely we're not in a, even a position to even think about that just yet. Well, Elon Musk is. He wants to die. On, he says he wants to die on Mars of old age and not on impact, uh, which which is which is okay by me. Uh, Elon, you want you want that? Then go ahead, make make it come true. The notion is not one that that I believe uh, the twentieth century generation will will actively participate in, but we may see glimmers of it. Personally, I think um, it's a better target than colonizing Mars would be um, these wonderful uh, proposals for uh, spinning um, asteroidal colonies because that's where the wealth is and that's where the water is and that's where you can completely control the environment. But we don't know how to do that yet, uh, And but we're on the road now to figuring out to, how to do that. But I, I want to say one other thing, and that is that, you know, just as the right wing uh, sabotaged some aspects of spaceflight uh, in order to maintain a cult regarding climate change, um, there are people on the left of the spectrum who feel an, a visceral hostility uh, towards – not so much towards science. That's – anti-science is a right wing thing these days, but against technology. And against technologists, um, the temptation is to think we can only save the world and uh, reduce poverty and do all those good things uh, in a zero-sum game. If we sacrifice um, 
other, uh, other things like space flight. And if you ask them to estimate, for instance, what uh, percentage of the U.S. discretionary budget is spent on space flight and NASA, they will always guess that it is something like 20 or 30 times what it actually is. It's actually 0.5% of the budget. And I've already mentioned some spectacular benefits that we've received. But the number one thing from a liberal perspective is it gives us a chance to uh, have real data, not just about the climate and about, uh, but say, for instance, uh, uh, the rates of logging and deforestation in the Amazon basin. Uh, Because of these satellites, uh, Brazilian officials have their feet to the fire and they're able to discover uh, illegal logging sites and mining sites much quicker than before. Uh, if you can, uh, if you want to reduce poverty in the developing world, the number one thing they found that has made the biggest difference in Africa is cell phones. Uh, it just enabling people to do their business, their daily business, as easily as we do in the West. And in these poor countries, the few um, landlines that they did have were being ripped out of the ground to sell the copper. It was impossible in these poor countries to establish the old-style infrastructure. But now, just entrepreneurs go in there, they set up a few dozen cell phone towers, they're in business, and everybody can talk to everybody else. This, according to the World Bank, is the biggest thing changing things in Africa. And and it's all reliant on satellites. So, you know, I'm not trying to make a super sales pitch. What I'm trying to say is, the fundamental thing I'm trying to say is that if your thinking is zero sum, in order to do this good thing, we have to stop that good thing, then your thinking is wrong. The whole story of our success in this last century has been positive sum that we can have our cake and eat it too while watching it grow and aggressively sharing it with the poor. The only way out of the problems that we have is if we think positive sum, that we can do everything. Because we can. That's the fundamental. We can do everything. It's funny, that was my next question, David, because I was going to say, you mentioned we've got this you know, built-in can-do spirit. But then I was thinking, you know, surely though it, it just gets kind of hit and battered down every time when funding comes into it, when politics come into it. Surely it just cannot survive on its own. You know, you know there must be something else better than the, the can-do spirit to get we're up there and achieving things. The problem we face is that, um, is that the can-do spirit is under attack. We all knew these people on the playground, in, in, in middle school, in, in when we were 12, whenever you, we, we said something enthusiastic and hopeful, the simplest way to shut us down was the curled lip sneer. And this is something that both the left and the right absolutely share. And that is um, they are reflexive middle school bullies who uh, who believe that they can uh, berate people uh, into into submitting to them, and and uh, and and the number one their one number one enemy is enthusiasm is optimism. Uh, they're 
are as many wonderful things that have been happening in the last few years as there are bad things. Uh, more, far more, rates of poverty are declining around the world. Every year, a higher fraction of children um, uh, come home to uh, cheap apartments that have a refrigerator, a, a toilet, and electric lights they can study by. Uh, every year, per capita violence declines all around the world, even though it, it's horrible in some places. These are islands of horror. Uh, and, and, and this is absolutely true. Technology is helping it to happen. Our rising human spirit and communication is helping to happen. The Internet and, and seeing each other's uh, problems and empathizing with people, uh, this is helping to make it happen. But some of your listeners are enraged at this point that I would dare to mention that good things are happening. <laughs> And the theory is that uh, if we allow any optimism, if we allow ourselves to notice any good news, that will reduce the impetus and the need and the desire and the felt uh, passion to make things better. And that response is, to put it plainly, absolutely gibbering insane. It is completely loco. And those people who have that reaction have proved that they are loco too. Good news does not lead to complacency. Good news leads to confidence that we are people who are capable of making some good things happen and therefore we can make other good things happen. And it can be sold that way. The whole notion that you uh, sell progressivism by saying that it, that, that it has never worked for 70 years is, 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 is insane. Whereas if you say progressivism has done a lot of good in the world, things are getting better, but if they don't get better a whole lot faster, we're all going to die. That's a sales pitch. And that can get people to open their wallets. That can get people to open their minds to things that can be improved. But uh, the point is sanctimony is such a addictive drug that uh, everything that I just said is going to have no effect <laughs> upon the sanctimony junkies of the left or the right. Uh, all they're doing listening right now is just boiling with rage. Uh, inchoate and and unreasoning rage. Well, David, David, let let we then don't worry about rage. Let we talk about. Let we calm this down and talk about art then, because you mentioned uh, visual art, and you, you kind of men mentioned this kind of effective visual art. Now, I think this is when I read your article so uplifting. If you could just tell me a little bit about this kind of effective visual art. Well, it seems like an unusual segue to move from all this talk about. <laughs> tech can do solving experience to art but i think that a strong argument can be made that effective visual art is that which alters people through the eyes and the optic nerve without persuasion it changes them without verbal persuasion and unquestionably great works of art have done that great brooks works of music for example um, uh, the 
but the greatest work of visual art, I believe, was uh, the mushroom cloud, the atom bomb, the hydrogen bomb. This was a product of technology. And at the time, there were arguments uh, between great minds like Edward Teller and, and Lawrence and, and, and Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer, um, whether or not humanity can be stirred into changing its standard reactions. And uh, Teller said that the image of the atom bomb and the threat of destruction would finally change our attitude towards war. And who would have thought that this mad Hungarian cold warrior would turn out to be the one who was right? Because it did. That image changed us. Not as much as it should have, not as much as we should have changed, but enough that we're here. And it helped stories, science fiction stories like, like um, 1984, Dr. Strangelove, Failsafe, On the Beach, to, to stir us the rest of the way to, to preventing that calamity, to preventing Mad Max. But the second great work of art of the 20th century came in December of 1968, uh, a year that uh, those of us who are old enough to remember it still sends shudders up our spines. It, it, it was a wor- year that any one week of that year would have killed any of you young whippersnappers. Uh, it, it, was, it was exhausting. And we thought that Pandora's box had been opened and all the ills of, of, of conceivable were, were flying around us like in some you know, hell movie. And then at the very end of the year, the very last news item came the glimmer at the bottom of Pandora's box, the glimmer of hope that was delivered by that image of the earth. The first time we were ever far away enough to snap a picture of our blue oasis. And that image changed us, perhaps even more than the image of the atom bomb. And both of these were the results of nerds, to be honest. Geeks, science, technology delivered those images that changed us. They delivered art. And I have to wonder, you know, so many beautiful images were delivered in 2015 from our, our space programs. So many images that should have stirred the soul. And, and I felt enriched all across last year with these moments of just feeling almost spiritually inspired by the vastness of the cosmos and our small place in it and our potentially huge role in the galaxy. That, that it, it, it's, it's, it's painful to realize how few people let themselves open their hearts to the art, the real visual art that we have been given this last year in the best year that humanity's ever had so far in space. Last question then, David. You know, you, you said 2015 was, you know, one of the kind of the quintessential years. Do, do we expect more? Going forward, or do you think now we're kind of in a bit of a stale meander now because we've peaked? Well, you know, all I can say is that the Juno mission arrives at Jupiter uh, this year, and uh, another, the Europeans' mission to um, Mars arrives in 2016. Um, the uh, the European um, gravity wave detection system um, gets underway during 2016. 
we're going to be, launch the James Webb Telescope fairly soon. Uh, the the number of possibilities for us to continue this increase, and uh, with with any uh, with any luck, the manned space program will 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 uh, resume its forward march, and 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 the asteroid miners will move forward. It would be lovely if we could mine asteroids and 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 thereby stop digging into our mother planet to get the materials we need for our civilization. Uh, you know, all we have to do is lift our heads, because if we lift our heads and notice the good, then it makes us more reliable and more persuasive when we point out the bad. And I think that is the biggest reason to let a little bit of optimism into our hearts. Also, because in science fiction, this relentless tsunami of dystopias and apocalypses is getting <laughs> boring. I, I look, up, look up David Brin and Idiot Plot, where I, where I talk about the reason why so many films, film directors and authors – uh, seem slavishly unable to give us anything but dystopias and apocalypses because they're lazy. It's easy to write a dystopia. It's trivial to write an apocalypse. It's far more difficult to write a near or intermediate or far future. But but if if you want to see a um, uh, some some sci-fi that's about more complicated futures. Well, look at Britain's Star- Charles Strauss, um, the great works of the late-mented uh, Ian Banks, um, the Hugo winner from this last year, um, The Three-Body Problem by Liu Cixin. Um, uh, my, uh, 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 offer a link to the wonderful three-minute uh, video trailer to my novel existence, Tony, will you? I certainly uh, will. That, that is a it, fantastic book, man. I must we're talking about that oh, book. That is quintessentially, well, <laughs> you know what I mean, a, a cracking novel. Well, the video trailer is even better. It provides images from the novel, no spoilers, but it's uh, it's it's the most fun uh, people will have in three minutes with their clothes on. But if they want, but if they want even more fun, they they need to tune into Starship Sofa. Oh, well, there you go. There you that's, go. That's that's <coughs> the fun. That's that's the most fun on the web. David, it's 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 nice to see you still your fiery, feisty self, sir. Fight for moder- for assertive, aggressive moderation. For, for militant, militant, uh, angry optimism. That's a, yes, that's a new buzzwords for you for 2016. There you go. David, what can I say? A big thank you for coming on and kind of just, like you say, you know, 2015 might have just, for me personally, might have just kind of went by as another year, but reading your little article there was just... It, it stopped us and realised that, hey, we are doing something good, you know. So thank you so much for, for writing it and for coming on the show. Good, good luck, Tony, and good luck to everyone out there, including those of you I made angry. You know I, you know I love you because you're trying to save the world. I just disagree on the method. And besides which, your face looks so good when it's purple. <laughs> David, you take good care. All right. Good luck to you.
There you go, 2016. What can we look forward to? Ho, ho. More of the same of Starship Sober, I think. David, thank you so much. I'll put a link on to David's article as well as David's site as well there. Thank you so much, David. You're a star, sir. Feisty as ever there. That's what I like to see. So the main fiction is Catastrophic Failure by David Steffen. Originally appeared in Perihelion Science Fiction. David is a software engineer, writer living in Minnesota. He is the editor of Diabolical Plots, a speculative fiction zine of fiction and non-fiction in 2015. Diabolical Plots began publishing original fiction for the first time. He is also the administrator of the Submissions Grinder, a web tool for writers to track their submissions and find markets for their place. His work has appeared in Escape Pod, Daily Science Fiction and EA as well as many others. This story, oh, this story, Mark Killerfold. Mark has just got the voice and is just doing awesome stuff on Starship. So, honestly, I need to buy this man a drink, man. Fantastic. Mark, thank you so much. I'll put a link on the Mark site as well. So, the Starship Sober is very proud to present Catastrophic Failure by David Steffen. Gabriel made his rounds of the mining crawler at a leisurely pace. The official reason for the walk was to perform one last visual inspection to mark the end of his month-long work cycle. He'd spent a busy month sending valuable metals to the sky in balloons and receiving supply crates from Earth after they dropped through the thick Venusian atmosphere. He was glad for a bit of idle time, and he was enjoying his conversation with Mac, despite the communication delays. A green dot glowed on his heads-up display of his glasses, indicating an incoming message. He stopped, nodded, and his display filled with the image of his communications officer back on Earth, Angel McCoy, Mac for short. She was beautiful as the day he'd met her, fifteen years older now, but she had aged well, her black hair and pale but healthy skin making a sharp contrast on his HUD screen. I've been looking at the marauder attacks on the outposts across the solar system, and I just can't figure out the pattern. She bit her lip and thought. I know you say it's random, and it seems like you're right, but that's my point. They're too random. Why attack a mining crawler on Mars, one on the asteroid belt and one on Io within 24 hours, and leave the rest of the crawlers alone? Her image disappeared with the end of the transmission. They'd had this conversation before, many times, usually just before he went into cryo for another five years. He suppressed a sigh. He didn't want to spend his last minutes awake having this same old argument, but he knew it couldn't derail Mac when she got on this train of thought. The Consortium World Government was the only group on Earth who had enough resources for a space program. Any who resisted them were grounded. Yet someone had been attacking mining crawlers, a handful every few years, each one marked with a hull breach, some damaged equipment, and a full crew worth of bloody corpses. No valuables or technology were ever taken. Mac, if you could figure out a pattern to the attacks, what would you do? Unless someone started building space vessels built for combat that you haven't told me about, there's nothing you can do. Besides, what have you learned that the consortium are behind the attacks? Gabe's working months were timed for when Venus was at its nearest point to Earth, but even then the communication delay was about five minutes round trip. He continued on his rounds. He knew he'd find nothing wrong, 
The mining crawlers were designed with redundant layers of safety measures, and even the most minor of problems would spawn notifications on his heads-up display, on his glasses. The work was merely an extra level of redundancy. He rounded a corner into the starboard work corridor. The walls were a drab gray, as they were in the rest of the ship. Hivers passed him in the 400-meter hallway, men and women alike with heads shaved and wearing the hive's sleek white uniform. When he was a boy, their tendency to avoid eye contact had unnerved him. It was nothing personal. That was just how Hivers always behaved. Genetically, they were still human, but you couldn't expect normal human behavior from them. They were what they were. The exact origin of the hive was speculative. The hive had appeared from nowhere a hundred years ago, while the fledgling consortium was still struggling to establish a foothold in the belt race. The hive's exclusive collaboration was the factor that tipped the race in the favor of the consortium and had allowed the consortium uncontested control of the solar system ever since. Gabriel nodded at the green light that signaled a new message from Mac. The consortium can't be behind the attacks. They're far from innocent, but there'd be no profit in attacking their own miners. Each of those stations is billions of dollars of investment. I couldn't take it if, if you died. You're special to me. You know that, right? My crawler won't be attacked, he assured her. I had worse odds of survival than the trip to Venus, and I'll have worse odds on my trip back. Don't worry yourself into an ulcer, please. Fifty hatches lined one side of the corridor, each leading to the docking bay of a burrower, each little more than an armored bubble with a cramped cockpit and a cargo cavity. The crawler moved along the surface steadily and dropped the faster burrowers in its wake to do the fetching. The burrowers were running every hour of every day, manned by a rotating staff of hivers. The hive was Gabe's charge, his horde of silent and efficient workers. It never slept. It only ate its body's caloric minimum, and it worked with a level of coordination unequaled by anything the consortium workers were capable of. Not only could these hivers act in unison with each other, they could act in perfect unison with any other portion of the hive in the solar system. It was common knowledge that quantum entanglement was the key to the hive's unity, allowing communication without delay and through any obstruction. The consortium had yet to discover a reliable method of quantum entanglement, and the hive wasn't forthcoming about it. A dozen hivers entered the corridor in single file, their steps and even their blinking in sync. The file of hivers stopped in front of a row of burrowers. Just as they stopped, the hatches of the burrowers opened from the inside and twelve hivers stepped out, their places immediately taken by the new shift. The relieved hivers walked away in similar synchronized fashion, and Gabe continued on his rounds. A green light flashed, signaling an incoming message from Mac. He nodded acceptance. "'I'll miss you,' was all she said. Well, he dawdled long enough. Time to head back to cryo. "'I feel a hundred-year nap coming on, Mac.' Do you mind giving me a wake-up call? I'll be at the top of the vine-covered tower. You know how to wake me. He descended the stairs to his quarters deep within the nose of the crawler, one of only three such rooms. Three quarters, three engineers, working on a rotating shift, each working one month when Venus was closest to Earth. Most of the mining complex was taken up by equipment and the thousands of hivers that operated it. 
and the minimum facilities required to sustain them. The green light lit, and he nodded to allow Mac's message. Good night, sleeping beauty. I'll see you in five years. Don't be expecting true love's kiss to wake you up. I'm more of a boot-to-the-teeth kind of girl. She blew him a kiss. Sweet dreams, Gabe. Sleep safe. He smiled. Good night, Mac. Don't ever change. Once in his cramped quarters, he washed and shaved. He liked to start the cryosleep out feeling fresh. He slipped off the HUD glasses and lay down in his cryopod, a smooth egg filled with a tech jelly. He sat at the room-temperature goo and slipped on his respirator mask before lying back and allowing the jelly to close in over his whole body. The lid closed down, and everything went black. He counted down from ten in his mind and was asleep before he reached five. When Gabe next opened his eyes, the lid to his cryopod was already open, and he had a deep feeling of wrongness about his waking. He felt more groggy than usual, and his stomach felt sour. He suspected he'd been woken early, which would only happen if something had gone wrong that the hivers couldn't handle. He removed his IV nutrient feed and his catheter and stood carefully, wobbling a bit. The power was still on in his quarters, but that didn't indicate the state of the station. His quarters were run on an independent power supply from the rest of the crawler to ensure that he wouldn't rot in his cryopod from a short circuit in another sector. He forewent his usual routine of washing up and only toweled the gel off his head just enough to pop his goggles on. The date in the corner of the display confirmed his feeling. Only three and a half years had passed since he'd gone into cryo. That would mean that Ramirez's engineering shift had only ended a few months ago, and Venus was headed away from Earth again. An exclamation point indicated an urgent message, but before he could answer it, he had to dash to the toilet. He voided his watery bowels and sighed with relief as the sour feeling passed with them, leaving only a dull headache. Wake-ups were usually just like waking up from a long nap. This one must have been accelerated to be this rough. At least the wireless network was still running if he could use his glasses. He nodded to open the message. It was a text message sent by the crawler. Engineer Jones, you have been revived outside of your normal cycle to investigate an unexplained decline in efficiency of minor crawler 3X9A. Please investigate and return back to your comm officer with your findings. In his twenty years on the crawler, Gabe had never been woken early. The hive thought of little else but efficiency. Something must be seriously wrong to prompt this. Details, he said, to bring up the statistics display. A line chart of efficiency percentages filled his vision. From the beginning of the chart, six months prior, the efficiency began at 93% and hovered near that value for all of the intervening months until today, where it took a sharp decline. Zoom in. Range one day, ending with present time. The chart zoomed in. Efficiency looked normal until about 90 minutes prior, with the line plummeted from 93% to zero. Open comm line to Angel. A green ball flashed, indicating success. Mac, I'm up early. We dropped to zero efficiency. No need to get too worried just yet. Probably just faulty sensors. It didn't feel like a faulty sensor. He noticed that his message light was still blinking green, so there were other messages. 
He loaded up some diagnostic tests and set them running on the network. Gabe began to dress, grabbing his uniform by feel. He started the oldest message as he zipped up his shirt. It was Angel, a bit heavier this time with a shorter haircut. A wide grin split her face. Hey, Gabe, I know you won't get this for a couple of years, but I've been promoted. I'm middle management now. A corner office, a huge pay hike. I'll have a couple dozen people working under me, so I'll get to hone my evil overlord laugh. They wanted to pull me from all my comm officer work, but don't worry. I convinced them to let me keep working with you because we've established a rapport, as I said in my memo. I'll give you up when they pry my microphone from my cold, dead fingers, she winked. Later, a yellow light flashed to signal the completion of the diagnostic tests he'd run. Text filled his view screen. No problems found. This followed by numbers detailing each section of the crawler, but all within normal parameters. With a word, he sent the diagnostic results to Angel. I'm headed up for manual inspection. Wish me luck, sweetheart. And congrats on the promotion. The walk up the stairway from his quarters seemed unending, heavy with imagining what might have gone wrong. He headed for the starboard work corridor. Halfway there, he came across a male hiver curled into the fetal position in the middle of the hallway. Gabe rushed to his side, knelt beside him, and laid a hand on his shoulder. The hiver twisted and grabbed Gabe by the front of his uniform, pulling him down with surprising strength. "'Help me!' the man screamed, eyes bloodshot and flecks of spittle flying when he talked. "'I'll help you,' Gabe said, trying to stay calm. He tried to pry the man's hands away, but he couldn't shift the white-knuckled grip. "'Tell me what's wrong, and I'll help you.' "'I'm blind!' the man said, his eyes intent on Gabe's. "'I'm blind and alone. I don't know how to be alone anymore. I don't know what to do.' "'I don't think you're blind,' Gabe said. "'Your eyes are focused on mine. "'Seeing you with my eyes, yes,' the hiver said, brow furrowing. "'But you are all I can see. "'All else is black. "'Are you injured?' "'I don't know how to tell,' the hiver said. "'He released Gabe's uniform and began to sob. "'Are the others in the same state as you?' The hiver only continued to cry. Gabe left the hiver and continued on. The green light blinked, and he nodded to let the new message through. The goggles, sensing his movement, switched to monocular mode to allow him to walk. Angel appeared on his screen, as beautiful as ever. Her hair was starting to show streaks of gray. Physically, she was old enough to be his mother now, but that face still made his heartbeat quicken. "'Good to see you're alive and kicking ass, Gabe.' I'll be watching for your diagnostic results. Keep me posted. I'm going to grab a cup of coffee so I'll be awake enough to parse them. Gabe rounded a turn into the starboard work corridor. There were hivers in the wall, as expected, but they were all idle, some lying curled on the floor, some leaning against the wall and staring with desperate intensity at nothing at all. Some of the hivers watched him. A male hiver grabbed Gabe by the shoulder. I am broken. Gabe had grown so accustomed to the hiver's synchronized movements that their every individual move was a jarring discord. They weren't blinking or breathing in unison. They were broken. Gabe gently removed the man's hand, trying to keep his face calm. 
He was afraid he could trigger a violent outburst if he made the wrong move, and he couldn't afford that. He needed to find out what had gone wrong. He brought up a diagram of the recent burrower activity. The burrowers hadn't been operating at all for two hours. Only two of the two hundred were docked in the crawler at the moment. The rest were out there somewhere. The burrower's air supply only lasted for about four hours without replenishment to the crawler. Another two hours, and those hivers would suffocate. This was bigger than he could handle by himself. It was time to call in one of the other engineers. Wake Gina. A green confirmation light glowed on his HUD. She'd be mobile in 45 minutes. He considered waking the third engineer as well, but decided against it for now. There were only two behemoths to pilot, anyway. Standard operating procedure for a burrower breakdown was to pilot one of the two larger burrowers, the behemoths, out to retrieve it. They were slow, but large enough to carry a disabled burrower back to the crawler. But they were only meant for occasional isolated breakdowns, not for mass failures. There was no way to recall burrowers automatically once they were out. They weren't equipped with wireless communication, of course, as wireless would be useless through meters of rock. But stone was no barrier to the hive's communication, if the hive weren't broken. What could have broken the hive? An EMP might do it, but it would also have wreaked havoc with the crawler's computer systems. Gabe opened a comm line to Angel. Something weird's going on. Something disrupted the hive. They're just individuals now. Couldn't have been an EMP. Can you dig for information on your side? Is the hive on Earth still working? Has something like this ever happened before? He closed the comm line and issued a command to the crawler. Ready both behemoths. They had never been used in Gabe's twenty years aboard. He opened a line to Gina to leave her a message for when she woke. Gina, something's disrupted the hive. They've been separated from each other, and they're not capable of much right now. No idea why. Diagnostics all come up green. Most of the burrowers are out there, stranded. Come help me retrieve them when you're up. An orange light appeared to signal the behemoths were ready with fresh air and power. He stepped in through the heavily armored hull into the cockpit. He pulled the hatch shut behind him, sealed it. Once he was strapped into the chair, the holographic navigation display appeared in front of him, showing his surroundings in the stone in grainy three dimensions. The behemoths and the burrowers navigated by means of shockwaves through the stone, like navigating by sonar. He could see dozens of bright points on the display. Most would be burrowers. With painful slowness, the behemoth burrowed toward the closest one. More than ten minutes passed before he reached it, and another several as he maneuvered the behemoth into retrieval position. He was rather rusty at these controls, having never used them since training. There, he pressed the button to retrieve and he could hear the inner mechanics of the behemoth as it opened its womb and sent out grasping arms to pull in the wayward burrower. The behemoth carried the burrower back to the docking station and docked it. As if the work wasn't slow enough, he had to bring the behemoth back to its own docking station, exit, go down a level to the burrowers, and open the burrower hatch for himself. He hardened himself before opening the hatch, but the hiver's wordless scream still made him wince. He left her strapped in to save time. With the hatch open, she wouldn't run out of air, at least. As he headed back to the behemoth, he received a new message from Mac. Your hiver trouble must be localized. The hivers at the office are still working as usual. I've never heard of anything like this before. 
and if there's anything to be found, I'll find it. Hang tight, Sleeping Beauty. He opened another burrower's hatch to allow the hiver to breathe, but left her strapped in so he could run back to the behemoth and out into the planet again to save another. Time felt simultaneously rushed and frozen as he repeated his task. As he exited the behemoth for the third time, a message arrived from Gina. I'm awake and headed up to help you retrieve. I started Ramirez thawing too. Seems like we could use an extra set of hands. The status light on the other behemoth's docking station indicated that it was out, so Gina must have already gone out for her first retrieval. Gabe kept going and retrieved four more hivers before he found one not breathing. As he stepped back into the behemoth's hatch, the message light blinked green, just before a deep boom reverberated through the crawler. An exclamation point appeared. Shit, he muttered. Report problems. The result appeared on one side of his goggles. Hull breached. Sectors 6C and 2D. Source of damage undetermined. Extent of damage severe. Communication transmitters A and B inoperable. Sector 6C compartmentalized to prevent further atmospheric loss. Open comm line to Angel. Error. Communications transmitters A and B inoperable. Play message. It was Angel. Voice ragged and eyes red. Something's up. They're pulling me off calm duty. They're acting like it's a promotion. Like I should be happy to be free of you. I wasn't supposed to contact you again, but hell if I'll just disappear. I'm not giving up, Gabe. I'm going to find out what's going on, and I'm going to find a way to tell you if I have to hitchhike to Venus. Signing off. They'll throw me out of my ear if they catch me talking to you. He tried, with effort, to swallow the lump that had formed in his throat. That might be the last time he heard from Mac. He didn't want to think about that. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. What was the consortium trying to hide by pulling her off calm duty? Could they really be behind the attacks? It could, theoretically, just be meteor impacts, but the odds were against it. Venus's atmosphere was much thicker than Earth's, 
all but the most gargantuan meteors burned up before impact. Anything that big would have destroyed half the crawler, not just the two tiny sectors that contained the transmitter arrays. They'd still be able to receive communications, as the receiver arrays were separated from the transmitters. There were enough parts to set up a new transmitter array three times over. The bigger problem was still the broken hive. The hatch to the other behemoth opened and Gina stepped out. For a brief moment he was speechless, disoriented by seeing her right in front of him, a regular human who wasn't a member of the hive. Her hair was cropped in a crew cut like his own. Gina, hello. She smiled a sincere smile and embraced him. Good to see you, Gabe. I wasn't expecting to see you in the flesh for another forty years. He grinned back, genuinely enjoying the moment despite their situation. Now we just need Ramirez to complete the set. Her smile slipped. We should have heard from him by now. Open comm line to Ramirez. Diagnostic, cryopod, cryopod 2. Damn. The crawler can find his pod. What does that mean? I don't know. We'll check on him later. We need to get back out there and save more hivers while we still can. They saved five more hivers, all unconscious by the time their burrowers were opened up. Gabe and Gina left them strapped in to save time. The four after that were already dead. You check on Ramirez, Gina said, and I'll see what I can do about the transmitter. He nodded and jogged toward the distant sector of the ship of Ramirez's quarters. He passed through common areas with sleeping mats for the hivers and food dispensaries, all clogged with passive hivers. Hundreds of able-bodied men and women on the ship, but only three capable of acting for themselves. What a mess. The doors to Ramirez's quarters slid open at the press of a button. The hatch to Ramirez's cryopod stood ajar, and Ramirez still lay in the cryogel, his eyes closed, so peaceful and asleep. Something was wrong. The hatch should only open when awakening was imminent. Gabe reached in, pulled Ramirez up to a sitting position, his chest and head above the cryogenic gel. He checked Ramirez's pulse. No pulse perceptible beneath the cool skin. The face mask wasn't clouding with his breath. Comline to Gina. Ramirez didn't wake up. Attempting to revive. He removed Ramirez's IV and catheter, pulled off the face mask, and wrapped his arms around Ramirez's torso to haul him out of the tank. Ramirez's arms flopped out, bouncing off the ground, and the fish-slippery body nearly slid out of Gabe's arms. Gina, over audio. Need a hand? No. Two sets of hands won't help him any more than one. Work on the transmitters. Gabe laid him out and used one of Ramirez's towels to dry off the man's chest and face. He pulled a defibrillator pack from the first aid kit and stuck it to Ramirez, backed off to allow it to work. Ramirez bounced from the shock, but the heart monitor didn't start up. He pressed the button to run it again. Nothing. Again. Nothing. Gina said, Gabe, where are the repair bots? Gabe cleared his throat. They're where they always are, in their compartments in sectors 3A and 9A. They're not. At least the compartment in 3A is empty, and the crawler reports the others empty too. Where does it say the bots are? When I ask, it just spits out a string of gibberish. Looks like 
random characters. His goggles flashed an exclamation point, and text scrolled across his face mask. Air processing systems damaged, running at diminished capacity, cause unknown. Gabe cursed, but grabbed Ramirez's atmosphere suit and pulled it on. Gabe, Gina said over the comms. What the hell is going on? No clue. Suit up and meet me at air processing. They arrived at the same time, Gina arriving in a suit of her own. The door opened for them, and they stepped into the air processing maintenance area, little more than a narrow corridor lined with panels. One of the panels had been removed, and he could see a bit of the repair bot's bucket-like body sticking out of the hole. Its multitude of arms jockeyed for space, elbows akimbo. Each arm ended with a tool, a screwdriver, a hammer, a knife. The floor outside the opening was scattered with parts, bits of pipe, circuit boards, air filters. They exchanged a glance. You didn't send the bot here? She asked. Gabe shook his head. Deactivate repair bot, she said. Nothing happened. Gina stepped toward it slowly, step by step, to see if she could tell what it was doing. The repair bots are not intelligent. They could perform specific instructions, anything that their multitude of arms with graspers, cutters, multi-tools could perform. If the crawler diagnosed a specific problem, it could task a repair bot to follow a pre-written procedure to resolve that problem, but the crawler should have notified them of the dispatch. Gina got close enough to peer in the hole. It's not fixing anything. It's wrecking. One of the bot's arms flashed into motion, flickering towards Gina. She jumped back, and the arm tore a gash at the neck of her atmosphere suit. Gabe stepped forward to grab her, even as her back hit the opposite side of the narrow hallway, and she stumbled forward again. Another of the repair bot's arms swung and smashed into her leg, producing a loud crack and a shout of pain. Her leg collapsed beneath her, but he caught her around the waist and pulled her out of its reach. The arms extending out of the hole flailed wildly at them, with blades and hammers and all other tools. It tried to back out of the hole, but its treads caught on the debris of its work. Gabe pulled her backward through the doorway and back out into the main corridor. He set her down as gently as he could, but she still cried out in pain. Her injured leg bent with a slight sideways angle. Her face was too pale and beaded with sweat behind the suit's clear helmet. Her eyes were unfocused, staring past him. Gina, can you hear me? A long pause, and then she nodded, tight-lipped. I need to go back in there, to stop it from doing any more damage. She nodded again. He left her propped against the wall, to go back into the room. Gabe picked up a three-foot length of pipe from the scattered debris on the floor, careful to stay outside of the bot's reach. It was still working inside the maintenance hole. Most of its arms maneuvered in the cramped space leaving only four arms extended into the narrow hallway. Its array of tool arms arched out from its bucket-shaped body like the legs of a spider. The nearest one was the bladed arm that had cut Gina's suit. He inched forward, gauging carefully the repair bot's reach, which looked to be shorter than his pipe by at least a foot. He swung hard, and the pipe connected with an impact that reverberated up his arm. The bladed arm fell limply to the floor, leaking hydraulic fluid. He swung again at the hammer arm that had broken her knee, disabling it in turn. It struggled to extricate its other arms from the hatch, but the space was too cramped for it to maneuver properly. He disabled its two remaining free arms, leaving its squat body exposed of the tangle of limp limbs. 
He struck the bot's body with his pipe. Once, twice, the pipe threw sparks with each impact. Five blows, six, and the remaining arms finally went limp. As he turned to leave, a blast knocked him to the ground. He caught himself roughly on his hands, his palms stinging from the impact. Shaking, he regained his feet and peered into the hatch for the black smoke rising from inside the cavity. Nothing remained of the repair bot but scraps. If it hadn't been in a recessed hatch, Gabe would have met a quick end. As it was, he didn't know if the crawler contained sufficient parts to fix the air control system from this extent of damage. His goggles flashed an exclamation point. Repair robot A inoperable. Cause unknown. Where's the other repair bot? Location and status of repair robot B unknown. He cursed. He hadn't heard any other damage reports, so perhaps the other bot hadn't gone nuts like this one had. The crawler's damage report system still seemed to be functioning, so he could still receive notification if the other one went to work. He needed to fix the air control system, but first he needed to tend to Gina's injury. He found her where he'd left her. She'd removed her helmet, useless anyway, now that her suit had been breached. I need to move you to the medic bay, he told her. I'll be as careful as I can, but it's still going to hurt. Okay? She nodded, grunting when he picked her up, and her breathing came in quick gasps, but she was taking the pain very well. He carried her to one of the medic bays, trying to step lightly so he wouldn't jar her. Instead of setting her on one of the beds, he laid her carefully on the floor. The beds came equipped with needles that would lock onto an engineer's IV port to administer medication automatically. After the bot's behavior, he didn't trust the med system not to kill her with an overdose. Unfortunately, the controlled medications were all administered only by the med system to avoid the danger of drug dependency. His training had said. This had made sense at the time. He propped her head up with a pillow and gave her a bit more than the recommended dose of ibuprofen with water. Thank you, she whispered, and swallowed them down. He turned to rummage through the drawers. I need to make you a splint. No, she said quietly but firmly. You need this. No time. You need to find the other bot. He tapped his goggles. The damage sensors are still operating. Wherever the bot is, it hasn't gotten into any trouble. Unless... Every piece of equipment on the crawler, large or small, was wired into the damage sensors. All the equipment, but not the hivers themselves. They were expected to inform an engineer if they needed help, but they were helpless in their current state. And the other bot's storage compartment was adjacent to the starboard work corridor. He cursed and left Gina, running as fast as he could toward that corridor. This was all seeming more and more like a coordinated attack. The organizer knew that he would see an alarm for the air control system damage to the ventilation system and would probably be killed by the rogue repair bot. Meanwhile, another one could be slaughtering the hivers wholesale. The door slid open to the work corridor onto a scene of carnage. A dozen hivers lay dead or bleeding on the floor, throats or bellies cut, Heads caved in. The floor was stained red with their blood. Halfway down the hallway, the other repair bot was stuck, trying to run its treads over the legs of an outstretched corpse. Its treads were too small and the tiles too slippery with blood for it to get proper traction. 
There were living hivers on the other side of that obstruction, but none were making an effort to flee. Some stared, seeming catatonic. Some screamed, gesturing at the bloody scene. One sat on the floor and rocked back and forth in quick, jerking motions. "'Run!' he shouted at them. They didn't move, and the repair bot was now using a rotating saw implement to cut its obstruction into smaller pieces. Gabe carefully approached it with pipe upraised. The work corridor lacked the advantages he'd had in the ventilation hatch. Here the bot would have the full advantage, with room to maneuver its arms. He had to consider, too, the self-destruct that had occurred when he damaged the other. Maybe if he disabled all of the arms he could leave it crippled rather than destroying the body. He swung at the trailing arm and connected, disabling its blade. But during the moment when he was overbalanced, one of the bot's arms struck him on the left shoulder with a heavy blow. Gabe staggered and slipped on the slick tiles, landing hard on his right side, sending a bolt of pain down his arm. His momentum made him slide out of the repair bot's reach, and he kicked his feet desperately to gain a bit more distance. His left arm wouldn't move. With great effort, he pushed himself to his feet, careful to keep from slipping and injuring himself further. The repair bot was ignoring him again, rolling down the hallway toward the surviving hivers. To have any chance, he had to find a way to gain the advantage. Perhaps he could disable its treads, trap it in place. Then he would carefully herd the surviving hivers to other parts of the crawler and leave it there. He might be able to disable it with explosives. He might have been able to improvise an explosive if he had more time. But all the hivers would be dead by then. If he couldn't disable its arms, couldn't he mobilize it? Maybe he could blind it. Its optical array jutted out in a clear encasement on top of its bucket-like figure. He thought of throwing something, a wrench, maybe, but the tangle of arms around it was too thick to have any chance of hitting it. If he knew the consortium at all, the glass covering the optics would probably be bulletproof in any case. It was almost finished sawing its way through the leg of the obstructing corpse. He had to act fast. He pulled the knife from its sheath at the waist of his atmosphere suit. With his good hand, he cut the leg portion of a uniform from a dead hiver, a man. The knife cut into the dead flesh beneath, welling up with sluggish blood, but that didn't matter. He slid the loop of cloth down over the man's ankle. Most of the cloth was soaked red anyway, but just to be sure, Gabe wiped it into the blood pooling on the ground, soaking it thoroughly. With his sopping length of cloth in hand, he approached the bot again. When he was just out of its reach, he arced the bloody cloth toward it, flicking his wrist at the last moment to snap it like a whip. The bot finished its gruesome cutting, heedless of the blood Gabe's maneuver spattered across it, and began moving forward again only twenty feet to the next living hiver. Gabe swung the cloth again, succeeded in getting a splash of red over the sensor. The repair bot stopped, and the world went white. When he woke, his body was a mass of agony. He was slumped against a wall on the opposite end of the corridor from where he'd been fighting. He could still move his left arm, but his toes wouldn't move. Shards of metal jutted from his abdomen. They'd missed his heart, barely, but he was bleeding badly from a dozen wounds. He destroyed the repair bot, but he would not survive his own victory. Gina would be on her own to tend her broken leg and would be left with no one to help her but a brain-dead workforce.
He wanted to help Gina, needed to help her. He looked around desperately for some unlikely path to survival. Nearby, the hatch of a burrower. The hiver sat inside, looking out at him, reaching for him, seeming to offer him solace. He was one of the ones that had been retrieved with a behemoth. He was still strapped in. Somehow the repair bot had not noticed this hiver in its passage, and a recessed space had been shielded from the explosion. Gabe felt compelled to go to him. He didn't want to die alone, and the hiver seemed almost normal, reaching to embrace him. He pulled himself toward the hatch with his only working limb, every movement sending sharp stabs of pain through him. He reached the hatch, and he pulled himself up using the hiver's restraints as handhold, adrenaline pumping through his system even for the simple act. He slumped across the man's lap, gasping for air. He could feel hands on the back of his head, touching, stroking. What the hell was the hiver doing? It didn't matter, not anymore. He was tired. Oh, so tired. And he could think of nothing but sleep. He closed his eyes and allowed oblivion to take him. The pain was completely gone. He could move his fingers and his toes. He felt strong. The air smelled of charred metal, burnt meat, and blood. Gabe opened his eyes. The blood-splattered walls of the work corridor filled his vision. He tried to stand, but was restrained, pressure exerting against his waist and shoulders. He noticed a weight on his lap and looked down. A bloody ruin of a man was face down in his lap. Gabe reached for the man's head to turn it to the side to reveal his features. He distantly noticed that his hand wasn't quite the right color or shape, but didn't realize what that meant until he moved the head and saw his own face on the dead man's body. The hand he'd reached out with looked wrong because it wasn't his hand. The hiver had saved Gabe, had transferred Gabe's mind somehow into his body. His heart pounded at the realization, a stranger's heart pumping strange blood. Despite the transfer of bodies, he was still decidedly Gabe. He still remembered his childhood, his training, his earlier months coming in and out of cryo on the crawler. Most importantly, he still remembered Mac. Besides his own memories, he had gained some knowledge from the hiver, memories of how the hive operated. He now knew that taking over other bodies was a matter of having them ingest his own nanite-infected blood, and it took less than a day to make another's body an extension of his own. He was the nucleus of a new hive, with a membership of one. His mind would be the one shared by all. There were more memories from the hive, a hundred years of memories, all jumbled together so that he didn't know how to order them. He wondered, as he had a thousand times before, where the hive had come from. The answer came to him. The nucleus mind of the hive had been Anatoly Gulabov, lead engineer for a top-secret Russian research facility during the Belt Race, which had discovered a cheap and reliable method of quantum entanglement and was investigating practical uses for it. Anatoly had forged an alliance with a consortium that soon moved him from the reach of those who hunted him and gave the consortium the efficient workforce that gave them the edge in the Belt Race. He pulled the HUD glasses from his former body and put them on. His message light glowed green. He nodded, and it displayed a last text from Mac. 
message to a dead man. Our benefactors did not start this, but they covered it up. I don't know how it started yet, but I'll find out. They deserve to rot in hell for this. You are a good man. I always loved you, you know. I wish I'd had the guts to tell you that before. Another remnant of the hiver's mind leaped to the forefront, and Gabriel understood that the hive itself had disabled his crawler's extension of the hive. Anatoly had always been efficiency-obsessed, The hive periodically severed those clusters that were performing poorly compared to the rest, both to decrease the mental strain of spreading himself too thin and undermine the consortium of his power over them. The consortium's sabotage made a horrible sort of sense now. The consortium kept its control over the solar system in large part by an illusion of imperviousness. Most people thought that the hive was just another part of the consortium, but Anatoly had never held that belief. If it became common knowledge that the Hive could collapse all of the consortium's holdings in the solar system with just a few minutes' work, the illusion would be shattered. A salvage ship would arrive when Venus was approaching Earth again, but that would be more than a year. That ship would be his ticket off this crawler. They would expect to find everyone dead, but he would be here, waiting. He would make it back to Earth. He would find a way to deal with the consortium. Maybe he could even meet Mac in person. It would be an awkward meeting with this new body, but he hoped she'd be able to see him for who he was. He had a gargantuan task ahead of him to survive until he could come back to Earth. But many hands and many bodies made light work. There you go, don't forget, listen, don't forget, copyright is David's. David, thank you so much for that. What a story, and what a fantastic writer. Yes, indeedy. And Mark, man, 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 Mark, thank you so much. Just churning them out, just fantastic stories, narrations. So, it's 2016, the first the first month of this year, and Mr. J.J. Campanella, we're getting to the end of it, man, that's the scary thing. Mr. J.J. Campanella has got his science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and New Year's revelations, my infamously concupient listeners, and welcome to this January 2016 science news update. I'm your host for this farcically ridiculous science podcast segment. Jim Campanella. I've just flown back from Peru, and boy, are my arms tired. Sorry, I've always wanted to make that horrendously moldy joke. However, the gist of it is correct, and I just got back from going to a wedding in the Andes last week. Let me make two observations about Peru and the Andes. Both are kind of sciencey, so bear with me. I try not to convey science with anecdotes. But sometimes you really don't have much of a choice. My first observation. I don't care what anybody tells me. Unless you are born there, I'm not sure you could ever really get used to the level of oxygen, or the lack of oxygen, at the 12,000-foot altitude. My friend and former student who got married there assured me that I would acclimate in a couple of days. I never did. After four days, I still sounded like an asthmatic combined with a chronic heart patient on their last legs. 
And I actually sounded worse when we went several thousand feet higher into the mountains for sightseeing. I never actually got altitude sickness, but I certainly wasn't feeling very healthy for the time that I was there. The Peruvians of the high Andes have two remedies for Blancos like me who can't get enough oxygen at that 58 to 63% level that you find up in the mountains. First, there's coca tea. Not cocoa, coca, as in the source of cocaine. The tea was available gratis, 24-7, at the front desk of our hotel. Leaves, tea, even coca candy can be found on every street corner or drugstore down there. And I was warned, don't even think about bringing any of it back to the United States. Even the candy may land you in jail. Apparently, U.S. Customs officials are very serious people. By the way, I never partook of the coca tea, mainly because it tasted like, uh, uh, well, let's just say it was very unpleasant. The second remedy that the Indians use for dealing with low oxygen is hypercaffeinated coffee. I was served coffee in the Andes that just about anywhere else on earth most people would have turned their noses up at. My mother drinks espresso so black that they could use it to paint the backdrops on Star Trek. So I know black coffee. Andean coffee goes a step beyond that. I think that each demitasse cup was equal to about five or six mugs of Starbucks. Now think about that for a moment, if you're a Starbucks aficionado. Starbucks is actually formulated to be super caffeinated. But Starbucks Americano coffee is like a kitty drink to the Indians. I have never in my life literally seen black coffee before. Thick black coffee. You read about it in bad books, but I have finally seen it. The coffee in the Andes isn't coffee unless it is as thick as maple syrup. The natives can drink this stuff black, as I witnessed, but I needed about a half gallon of milk to make it palatable for every demitasse. The amazing part was that it actually made me feel better. I think the massive influx of caffeine was able to at least temporarily counteract the effects of anoxia, just like the coca, which is another stimulant, by the way. I think an adrenaline injection straight to the heart would have had the same effect as either, but hey, that was asking just a bit too much of my hosts. My children were horrified when they found out that my lovely wife and I ate cooey while we were in Peru. Cooey, for the unversed, is one of the national dishes of the country. It is spit-roasted guinea pig. As friends told me down there, cooey have been eaten for centuries because they reproduce so fast and because they eat a very simple vegetarian diet. I know the question on all your minds. How does it taste? Well, kind of like rabbit, but way less fatty. After eating one, I can tell you seriously, it was a shame I bothered. There wasn't much there to make it worth it. Unless you chew it down to the bones, you're not going to get much of a meal. Which is why I was surprised that a half guinea pig was even on the cafe menu where we ate. I was still hungry after a whole guinea pig. Why am I telling you the cooey story? There's a point. Bear with me. The cooey had its revenge, so to speak, on my digestive tract. My children cheered when I told them that. I will not go into detail, but suffice it to say, I was in distress and needed medication. Here's where the sciency bit comes in. Many of you listeners are not from the United States, and I will readily admit 
that I now realize that I don't know how obtaining medications works in other countries. For those of you not familiar with the U.S., you go to a doctor, he or she checks you out, and you get a prescription for the medicine, which is then made available in a drugstore, a pharmacy, which will not sell those medicines to you otherwise. With over-the-counter medicines, such as, oh, let's say, Imodium as a random example, you can simply buy them off the shelves. When my wife and I walked into Mia Farmacia in Lima, there was not a single medicine out on the shelves, not even aspirin. When I saw this, I figured, good gosh, this is going to be a serious chore getting medicine. We may have to go to a doctor. Boy, was I wrong. We explained what the problem was to the pharmacist, and she came back with a box. And I was expecting, well, a commercial box that looked, let's say, like, oh, again, randomly, Imodium. This was a generic box of pills, which obviously had come directly from the drug company. The conversation carried out in a mixture of Spanish and broken English went something like this. Us. What's this? Pharmacist. Your medicine. Us. Okay, but what is it? Pharmacist. Anorax. Us. What is that? Pharmacist. For your symptoms. Us. Shrugging. Okay, I guess. I reach for the box and the pharmacist shakes her head. No, how many do you want? Us, with me staring in disbelief. Uh, how many do I need? Pharmacist, confused and shaking her head. No, how many do you want? Us, we don't understand. How many does one normally need? Pharmacist, as many as you want. This should not have come as a surprise to me in a country where coca is made into candy. Us again, desperately flipping through the Spanish phrase book, which does not cover this. What is the normal dosage over several days? Pharmacist. 600 milligrams per day, three times a day at each meal. Which, by the way, was untrue. More than a bit mistrustful, I looked it up later online. You were not supposed to take more than 400 milligrams per day of this particular medicine. Us. Can we see the box? Pharmacist. See. She shrugs and hands it over. Us. This has antibiotics in it. Pharmacist. See? Us, not really getting across a rather complex idea in either Spanish or English. Isn't there a minimum time this should be taken? Taking antibiotics for too short a treatment can create serious problems. Pharmacist. A shrug. Me under my breath. Did you actually go to pharmacy school? Pharmacist. So how many pills do you want? Even though the prescription of antibiotics in the U.S. is strictly controlled, well, unless apparently you're a cow, uh, that is not the case in Peru. Frankly, I would love to do a study to see if this free use of antibiotics has led to more drug-resistant bacteria down there than even in the U.S. Now, I am a fairly libertarian kind of guy. I believe the government should stay the heck out of people's lives. But I can honestly say that seeing how pharmaceuticals are so freely handed out down in Peru made me much more of a liberal. Regulate everything, please. People need to be taken care of when it comes to this stuff. This is just dangerous and crazy. I'm not sure how the rest of the world deals with pharmaceuticals, but Peru kind of worries me. At any rate, 
Why don't we actually get to the first story of the night, the first official story? Over the last year or two in newspapers and science journals, scientists have gone on and on about how much of the human body is made up of bacteria. Most scientists, in fact, have insisted that more of the body is made of bacteria than actual human cells, which I have found less than believable and more than a little stupid because the human cells may be fewer, but they are way larger by thousands of times. So saying a human is more bacteria than human is insulting and incorrect, even if there are more bacteria. Well, new evidence suggests that I was pretty much correct in my beliefs that the human body is not primarily made up of bacteria. Doctors Ron Sender, Shai Fuchs, and Ron Milo of the Weizmann Institute in Israel report a new study online, January 6th, at biorxiv.org. And their report is that human bodies do not contain 10 times more bacteria than human cells. There is a ratio of about 1.3 bacteria for every cell in your body. Or if you weigh about 150 pounds, that's about 30 trillion human cells to about 40 trillion bacterial cells. And again, since each human cell is thousands of times bigger, the actual mass of a human is not half bacterial. It is primarily human, so do not freak out. The authors say their estimate could be off by as much as 25%, with the average number of bacteria ranging from 30 trillion to 50 trillion. Among individual people, the bacterial count could vary as much as 52%, say, with a fudge factor of 10 trillion to 20 trillion bacteria. The number of microbes may pretty well match the number of human cells in the body, which also varies somewhat. The researchers write in their paper, quote, Indeed, the numbers are similar enough that each defecation event may flip the ratio to favor human cells over bacteria. Unquote. Oh, yeah, lovely. Ew. As I said, the scientists who study the microbiome have estimated that bacteria outnumber human cells anywhere from 10 to 1 or even 100 to 1, which is even more absurd. This new paper reports not only on bacterial cells, but the number of actual human cells as well. And you can whip out these factoids next time you want to bore that special someone in a cocktail party or bar. For example, the team found that red blood cells are the most numerous cells in the body, accounting for 84% of cells in the body by number, which is quite a bit. By weight, on the other hand, muscle and fat are heavy hitters, making up actually 75% of the actual cell mass. But those cells tend to be big and represent only a tenth of a percent of the human body cell number altogether. As expected, most of the bacteria in the body, about 39 trillion, live in the colon. Women tend to have smaller blood volume than men, so their bacteria to human cell ratio may be about 30% higher than that of men, the researchers calculate. Growing children probably fall within the range of bacteria to human cell ratios of adult men. Obesity doesn't change the ratio much, the team calculated. Okay, next story. For many years, we have believed that the state of your body does not alter genetics for your offspring. This has been a mainstay of genetics for at least 100 years. But with epigenetics, this idea seems to 
be kind of thrown out the window and changes every day. And it's become more and more of a question of does what happened in this generation affect the next generation or two or three generations down the line? And the latest is this. If you are male and obese, it will affect the genetic status of your sperm cells and probably affect your offspring. Dr. Romain Barres and his team of researchers from the University of Copenhagen discovered differences in the sperm epigenomes of lean and obese men and in the sperm of obese men before and after bariatric surgery, according to a study published last month, December 3rd, in the journal Cell Metabolism. The results support the idea that fathers' environments can be encoded in their sperm with potential downstream effects on embryos. The Copenhagen research team recruited two dozen Danish men between the ages of 24 and 40 and classified them as lean or obese based on their BMI. And each volunteer provided a single ejaculate sample. The researchers scanned the sperm's genomic DNA for methylation patterns and measured levels of small non-coding RNAs, which helped to regulate those epigenetic changes. They discovered significantly different levels of DNA methylation between the skinny and the fat volunteers in more than 9,000 genes. Of these, 274 had been previously implicated in appetite control. Just to remind you, methylation of genes, or the area near genes, seems to be the major way that we have so far discovered that epigenetic inheritance occurs. Genes can be turned on and off by having reduced levels of methylation in the DNA near them, or increased levels. Anyway, Barez says, quote, We were surprised. We could have expected that it would be genes related to metabolism or adipose tissue that would be important. To find genes related to brain function was really unexpected, unquote. Barez and his team also collected sperm samples from six obese men who were undergoing gastric bypass surgery. The researchers collected sperm samples one week before surgery, one week after surgery, and then a year later. The analysis revealed 1,509 genes with altered methylation patterns a week after the procedure compared to pre-surgical methylation. At one year post-surgery, the number had increased to 3,900, though Barez noted that the sperm epigenomes after gastric bypass surgery did not necessarily resemble those seen in moderately obese or lean individuals. Barez says, quote, Obese men have information that can be transferred to children that could potentially affect their eating behavior. And this information can be changed if obese men lose weight. Our study does not show what is transmitted to children, but it is likely that something is being transmitted and it will change brain development and behavior, unquote. My, my. Sounds very provocative, doesn't it, I guess? But I suppose the important thing is that a father does make his mark epigenetically on the offspring, and not just by the standard genetics that we have all known about for many years. Okay, next story. Is there something blacker than Peruvian coffee? Heck yes, there is. I came across this little article in the Daily Mirror. What would you do if you were unable to see something that is right in front of you? Well, I suppose you may be going blind, but that's not what I meant. You might be looking at a substance called Vanta Black. 
This material is so black that it simply cannot be seen by the human eye. Talking about something so visual in an audio podcast is a bit stupid, but you may want to look up a photo of this stuff when you have a minute. Our vision works by picking up reflected photons, light, from the objects around us, which provide our brain with the source to construct the world we see. Vanta Black absorbs 99.9% of all light that strikes its surface, a bit like a black hole. Therefore, no photons are being reflected for our vision to pick up, which is why we can't see it. Our brains try to make sense of the situation by shading color of other materials and objects around Vanta Black and trying to provide us with something to actually observe and look at. In reality, when we're looking at Vanta Black, we're just not able to see anything because there's nothing to see. As it stands, this stuff is officially the darkest substance known to man. People have described Vanta Black like staring into a black hole or absolute nothingness, as if there is literally a dark black hole there. Pretty amazing. Next story. Will aging soon be a thing of the past? Yeah, sure it will. Forgive my cynical attitude, but I have read too many SF novels to believe that if anyone ever came up with an effective way of keeping humans from aging, it would ever see the light of day. Yes, I sound like those old codgers who insist that Detroit car makers invented an automobile that ran on water but suppressed it away decades ago. But look, I'm sorry, I just can't help it. Dr. Antonio Carres at the Cellular Neurobiology Laboratory at the Salk Institute and his colleagues reported last month in the journal Aging that the synthetically developed compound J147 has shown both anti-Alzheimer and anti-aging effects. In rapidly aging mice, it restored vascular health, improved synaptic function, reduced brain inflammation, and also reduced other degenerative symptoms that are shared between aging and dementia. Carrez said, quote, The problem we faced in treating Alzheimer's is that most drugs have been developed based on an assumption that amyloid plaque formation in the brain is the main cause of Alzheimer's to be targeted. But these drugs have all failed. We instead sought a different approach by trying to identify the age-related causes of late-onset Alzheimer's disease, which would account for 99% of the cases. Unquote. The team looked at expressed genes and proteins in RNA to examine age-associated molecular changes in the brain and blood of three groups of rapidly aging mice. They then treated one group of older mice with J147 for seven months and compared their behavior and molecular data with young control mice and untreated older mice. The J147-fed group showed significantly improved locomotor activity and better performance on memory and cognition tests. The treated mice also displayed genetic and metabolic data profiles resembling the younger mice, rather than the control group of, well, old mice. Carey said that, quote, We saw positive anti-aging effects on the blood-brain vasculature, as well as reduced brain inflammation and improved oxidative stress and energy metabolism. We are conducting lifespan studies now, but so far J147 has shown beneficial effects to overall health, unquote. He finishes with, yes, 
while J147 must undergo more preliminary tests before human testing. Next year, another anti-aging drug, metformin, will become the first of its kind to enter human clinical trials. These studies could help raise consciousness for the idea that we need to look for other age-related aspects that could be the deeper cause of Alzheimer's and other diseases. It could have a huge benefit, unquote. Next story. Here's a short one from Nature Communications this month from the lab of Lennart Muck at the University of California. Historically, the BRCA genes are the ones best known for inducing breast cancer when they stop functioning. My understanding, and what I teach in class, has always been that they are tumor suppressor genes. BRCA1 and BRCA2 protect cells, especially those that are very sensitive to estrogen, like breast tissue and ovarian tissue. And these genes help to keep rogue cancer cells from ever growing. So it came as a bit of a surprise to me when I read this article that suggests that BRCA1 may have something to do with Alzheimer's. Yes, cue the previous story. Nothing having to do with neuronal tissue has ever been suggested for this gene. Despite whatever the past has suggested, new evidence in mouse Alzheimer models suggests that the BRCA1 gene may also have a role in regulating neuronal function. In fact, in this paper, the Nature Communications Report, the authors observed that there were greatly reduced levels of BRCA1 in patients who had Alzheimer's and in vitro in mouse neural cell cultures. Based on the results of the study, the presence of amyloid beta interfered with the proper BRCA1 expression. In turn, loss of BRCA1 appeared to contribute to increases in uh, neuronal uh, plaques and shrinkage, as well as deficits in learning and memory. Ultimately, BRCA1 expression as amyloid beta levels increase could be another therapeutic option for reversing clinical effects of Alzheimer's. And no, not just in women, but in men as well. All right, last story of the night. Crows. Three-eye crows? Nightwatch crows? Messenger crows? All right, messenger ravens? George Martin certainly has his symbolism down with these birds and Game of Thrones. Why are people so fascinated with crows and or ravens? Well, we've certainly seen them throughout time as harbingers of human death and portending evil. So it's not quite so hard to believe that Martin takes advantage of such a ubiquitous type of imagery. You may want to call this the, the Poe effect, in fact. But there are some weird things that crows do that have to do with, well, other crows dying. Kind of strange. Doctors Callie Swift and John Marsliff from the University of Washington just published a paper this month in the journal Animal Behavior that looks at some of the strange things that crows do around their own dead. You see, crows attend funerals for fallen or dead comrades. Why? What are they getting from these meetings around their deceased? Swift and Marsliff carried out a series of experiments that are both clever and really kind of creepy. First, to gain the trust of breeding pairs of crows, they plied the birds with a favorite snack of peanuts and cheese puffs, which I understand. I like peanuts and cheese puffs. 
Then a few days later, and in the sight of the resident pair, volunteers in rubber masks, which don't move, showed up next to the food pile carrying dead stuffed crows in their outstretched hands. As if this wasn't disturbing enough, these ghoulish scenes were sometimes paired with a stuffed hawk, one of the crow's most feared predators. The responses to these stimuli were markedly different. While a dead crow held aloft by a masked volunteer drew the unquestioned ire of the resident pair of crows, their scolding only occasionally attracted the attention of neighboring crows. However, when crows were confronted with a dead crow paired with a stuffed hawk, huge numbers of crows invariably formed that contained additional crows recruited from outside the territory of the breeding pair. Moreover, these mobs of crows tended to be larger and more persistent, thus maximizing the scolding. Swift says, quote, Our results aren't overly surprising. After all, hawks eat crows, and crows are smart enough to put two and two together. Dead crow plus hawk equals killer hawk. But what is especially neat about our experiment is that this contextual learning extended to the volunteer in the mask. Unquote. What does Swift mean? Well, in the six weeks after the main experiment, a volunteer appeared once a week with food while wearing that same rubber mask, as in the original exposure. Remarkably, even after weeks, more than a third of the crows continued to mob and scold the masked person. In short, the crows had learned that this person was a potential predator, both through her association with the dead crow and also through her association with the hawk. Thus, not only are crows capable of assigning guilt by association, but their memory of these associations can potentially persist for months or longer. So what does this really imply about crow funerals? Well, it pretty much means that crows are not interested in every dead thing that crosses their path. When the team repeated the experiment with a dead pigeon instead of a dead crow, the crows couldn't care less. The authors concluded that crows gather around their dead to gain insight into how to avoid a similar fate. By this cautious approach, even if the threat is a creepy mass doctoral student, crows can quickly learn to respond with suitable caution. After all, why risk death for a pile of peanuts? Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Be careful if you're offered cooey at a meal. Don't mix up Vanta Black with Peruvian coffee. Do not trust crows, of the Night Watch or otherwise. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. Jim, what can I say? Round of applause, sir. Round of applause. Thank you so much. So that is the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Like you say, 2015, it was, you know, it was a remarkable year. David, thank you so much for coming on and kind of highlighting that. David, Stefan, I'll put a link on if you want to go to David's site and see Diabolical Plots. And Mark, what can I say, a fantastic narration for that story. And Mr. J.J. Campanella, there as ever, sir. What can we do without you? I tell you, we'll be lost. Until next week, I'd just like to say, good night from me. Yeah.
terrorists survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shuttle set for launch. Aerodrome people to in three, two, one... This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.